Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. Thank you for joining me for this week's edition of the SMIE Consulting Midweek Roundup. It's Wednesday, November 30th, 2022, and today we're going to be answering three questions we've been hearing from international educators the last few days. And as we do each week, we take our news stories from the uh, SMIE Consulting newsletter that comes out on Monday mornings, and that's called All the SMIE News Fit to Share. And I'm dropping the links to the most recent edition of the news letter, as well as our SMIE Consulting website, where you can subscribe to the newsletter if you're not already subscribed, if you prefer it in email format. And we also make that available through LinkedIn, through their uh, newsletter services as well. And there are over 800 subscribers on that newsletter on LinkedIn, another 100 or so on the email version. So please do subscribe to that because that'll get you all of the stories that we cover potentially in these questions we answer. On Wednesday afternoon, you'll get those in your inbox on Monday mornings. Uh, those are our quick takes on Monday and we go a little bit more in depth into some of those key issues that we see coalescing around a few different news stories each week. So please do subscribe, thanks again to those that are watching live here on Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, or Twitter. Really glad to be a part of your weekly international edification. Uh, we always try and make this interactive as possible. Uh, we appreciate, though, that many of you can't watch live and that you're watching on repeat on any of those social channels or downloading the audio-only podcast version. So thanks again to those that have subscribed over the, over the last four years to make this uh, podcast uh, adventure really worth the effort on my part. So thanks again. Uh, Today we're going to answer, answer three questions, uh, as I mentioned earlier. The first one is, is the UK about to muck up a really good thing? And I did say muck up a really good thing. And this all centers around uh, recent news that's come out from number 10 with the new government in charge uh, under Rishi Sunak. Um, who has uh, has had members of his cabinet, uh, particularly Home Secretary Suella Braverman, uh, be very critical of uh, the increase in the net migration figures, uh, which have uh, have impacted uh, obviously services and everything else that uh, the UK government provides to migrants to the UK. Uh, the challenge has been uh, that university uh, students have increasingly made up a larger. Uh, percentage in the past year uh, of those uh, of that net migration figure stat. Uh, the, the, the numbers, if you're wondering what those are, we're talking about close to a, to a record half a million uh, uh, folks, uh, migrants to the UK uh, that are now, uh, uh, that, that is up substantially over, over years past from, uh, uh, let's see, we're looking at uh, that last year we're talking about uh, 504,000 uh, 504, more people are estimated to have moved to the UK than left in the 12 months to June 22, up sharply from 173,000 in the year to June 21. So that's uh, clearly well over 325,000 uh, extra uh, folks have come double basically, uh, more than double uh, the number that have come, uh, triple almost, uh, the number of migrants uh, that have come to the UK in the last uh, year. Now, uh, the Office of National Statistics uh, ha in the UK has said that this jump was driven by unique factors, including visa schemes for Ukrainian and Hong Kong citizens and students arriving from outside the European Union. So uh, the question is, of that 504,000, that's not all students, that's overall net migration. Uh, many university officials uh, in the UK for years have claimed 
uh, I've rightly said that these are students. They're not migrants. They're here to do a degree. Yes, they can stay uh, if they want after after uh, they're done with their degree for po two-year post-study work now. Uh, but they've asked that uh, these students be excluded from that net migrations because it draws, in their opinion, unnecessary attention to students that are may or may not be ones looking to stay. Uh, the, what the crux of the issue really has been around uh, the increase for, uh, for students. Uh, the students, in terms of that 504,000, uh, that is uh, the, the student migrants uh, in the numbers are at 277, so well over half, um, which it doesn't make a whole lot of sense because the 504,000 was the new number. Uh, net migration number, and it says it's only 39% of the total, but it's actually over half if you look at that. Uh, Long-term immigration of non-EU nationals. Okay, that's non-EU nationals of that total, 277,000 out of the 504. Uh, what uh, the Home Secretary has said quite publicly, um, in a very derogatory way, has uh, claimed that uh, the, it's not just the students that are included in these numbers, is that there's a, been a sharp increase in uh, dependents uh, that the students have been bringing with them that have also what uh, she calls bringing in family members who can piggyback onto their student visas and in so doing are, quote unquote, propping up, frankly, substandard courses in an inadequate institutions. Yeah, that's what you want your home secretary to say. Uh, certainly not... Um, a very uh, wise political statement to make, but again, the, this Home Secretary has been one who's uh, gotten herself in trouble in the previous uh, previous administration, uh, previous government um, under Boris Johnson, and briefly uh, her success, his successor. Uh, so we're we're seeing um, seeing some real uh, kind of foot and mouth disease, I think, happening in the UK, and I know that's uh, that's a hotly uh, uh, charged a phrase in the UK, foot and mouth and mad cow and all that wonderful stuff. But certainly uh, comparisons have been drawn uh, to uh, the kinds of uh, rhetoric coming out of number 10 that uh, certainly gives university uh, representatives and international educators in UK universities a lot of uh, pause about what's happening. Uh, and that's there. The questions are, uh, really, are 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 there all these extra dependents of stu of students, uh, and these are mostly at the graduate level. So, f uh, potentially, uh, uh, f folks who have families uh, that are bringing their spouses and children with them, so they can do a postgrad degree in the UK. So that seems fairly understandable, but uh, certainly it's not um, not drawing a lot of sympathy from the Home Office uh, or the or the current UK government. Uh, the ITV News article I put uh, certainly uh, it covers a lot of um, a lot of the uh, of a lot of the uh, language coming out of, of the current government, uh, but there's also a piece from the Guardian where uh, the cap uh, that might be put in place on uh, international students and their and their visas. Uh, could in uh, the, the kind of warning signs could send uh, UK universities over the edge, and that the the challenge is what uh, Number Ten has refused to decline, refused to indicate what they think uh, these low quality uh, what do they call them low quality degrees uh, at um, uh, these 
low quality degrees at inadequate institutions might mean. Uh, that's uh, obviously <laughs> making a lot of a lot of university officials kind of step up and take notice. And that might be something that uh, we think about, uh, like obviously outside of the elites, Russell Group institutions, those are probably be protected from uh, this kind of uh, cap uh, and clearly not the inadequate institutions. Uh, but we see uh, the challenge being here uh, in the UK now is damage control on the part of the universities that having to make the case, uh, as I mentioned earlier, to remove uh, student visas from the net migration numbers, even though the families that are come along with students at the postgrad level um, may be more inclined to stay if they're making that commitment to come for a one-year, two-year, three-year degree, uh, that uh, they're making that effort. So we, we, see, um, we see a lot of challenges moving forward with, in the, with the UK, and certainly no... Um, no no uh, real solutions in sight, uh, at least that none that have been proposed. So we'll keep an eye on that situation for you. But we look at what's happening there as um, a real challenge to the UK, who, if you've been following uh, the news lately uh, in the last couple of years, they've come out of the pandemic better than probably any other country on an all-around all scheme in terms of They've seen increases in Chinese students for the first year or two of the pandemic. They uh, didn't have the real visa challenges that the U.S. has had, that Canada has had, that Australia has had with China. Uh, they've seen increases in, in Indian students. In fact, uh, Indian students are now uh, in the U.K., are now considered the, uh, the dominant uh, or have surpassed new Indian students, surpassed new Chinese students coming into the U.K. this year. Uh, so that's the first time that that's happened. So there's, uh, there's a lot of uh, interesting dynamics going on in the UK, a lot of positive momentum. Uh, we, we knew right before the pandemic that uh, they had had a, uh, a strategic plan for, by 2030 to hit 600,000 international students, and they'd already hit that uh, prior to the pandemic. So they came down a little bit as the, everybody did in fall of 20, but then they built back up in 21 and 22. So they're they're on their way. They're l talking about a new strategic plan, a new uh, UK universities champion, uh, uh, potentially a new uh, uh, uh not advisory board, but a governing board uh, that helps develop the, uh, a future international ed strategy for the UK. Uh, so there's been a lot of positive things that have been building, uh, in addition to all the new non-EU students that have been coming to the UK, China and India driving the majority of that growth. Uh, they've obviously lost a lot with Brexit in terms of their EU, EU market, uh, down uh, 50, 60, 70% over the last two years. So the, they've had to look at other markets to help uh, keep their uh, tuition dollars flowing in uh, because obviously the European market students weren't paying, uh, were, were basically paying uh, the equivalent of uh, UK resident rates uh, and just have the extra housing charges uh, that would be normal, uh, the same for everybody. But you see what's happening with um, with the UK now. Uh, the politics are are getting in the potentially getting in the way of uh, this really good growth that they've experienced in the last year, couple of years, uh, and stunting uh, the momentum of um, recruitment initiatives. Uh, that particularly if there are limits on the post grad um, post grad student visas uh, and the number of dependents that can come in with them. Uh, that's that risk separating families and, and uh, really poses a significant challenge for universities that are considered inadequate if they ever define that, which I hope they don't. Uh, but that would be a really um, 
uh, interesting decision if they ever, if and when they ever uh, indicate what qualifies as an inadequate institution in the UK uh, to host international students, at least. So we'll keep an eye on that one. But that is uh, that is a warning sign, I think, that shows all of us, and I, I think. We saw that in the UK, in the US here, uh, certainly with the election of uh, President Trump in 2016, uh, his inaugural address in, 20, in January of 2017, uh, where the Muslim travel bans came down and uh, clearly made um, a, a negative impression of the UK, of the US at that time. Uh, and you see something similar happening here. Uh, if if and when these post-grad students that are coming in from different countries and bringing family members, uh, if they're all, all of a sudden now going to be in a race to try and get in and can only apply to certain institutions, and if there's a limit on them, how they're going to be factored in. Uh, a simple solution, if the UK government ever uh, sees the light of day on this one, I don't know if they will, but or gives it the light of day, uh, to, re to remove international students from the migration numbers, net migration numbers, because they're not it's not a it's not a category that is is clearly they're coming here to stay uh there may be only half of them or less that might stay uh i think the recent numbers i saw for uh graduates that were taking up the post-grad uh work or post-grad post-study work visa uh were under 40 percent uh that were actually taken up i don't i haven't seen recent numbers this past year but that to include them in my net migration numbers kind of is, is is a false flag i think because that they they aren't in that category they are the equivalent in the way the uk sees them um, since there is a pathway uh, that they and if they it's the equivalent of the uk seeing all um uh, seeing all international if the uk is saying that all international students are intended migrants to the UK, then that's the equivalent of us saying that international students that come here want to want to go on H-1B uh, uh, and then potentially stay are also included in net migration numbers. We don't have the equivalent really here in the U.S. Uh, we know we're bringing in more uh, more people are coming to the U.K. U.S. every year than are leaving that um, substantially more. Uh, so that's uh, that's a real challenge, and uh, you see you, you hear. Um, one of the one of the secretaries uh, in the government uh, in, in the UK is saying, when it comes to this growth uh, net migration, we need, if we're going to reduce numbers, we can't reduce it so far that we're in negative territory because we need migration in order to grow. Uh, so it's an economic reality that uh, the UK is facing that they need migrants to grow their country uh, to support the economy uh, in order to maintain quality quality of life and the standards that they have in the UK. So we'll see what happens with this, but it's potentially bad news for UK universities if they uh, don't get this issue sorted. Uh, but I hope that I wish them luck because uh, they shouldn't. Students really shouldn't be in that net migration number. So I agree with that completely. We don't count them in the United States in net migration numbers because they are in a non-immigrant visa category. Um, that's that's just the way we've reached. We've categorized them. I would hope, even with H-1Bs in the U.S., that's a dual intent. You can be here just to work for three, four years, five years, six years max, uh, or you could be on a pathway to immigration. It's not not a uh, an even a defined part of that visa category. It can be one or the other. So they wouldn't H one Bs wouldn't even be counted in that mix uh, as uh, intended migrants to the U S. So uh, we hope that someday uh, F one students can be considered dual intent, that, so they have that option and don't have to prove at age eighteen. 
that they're uh, what they know what they want to do for the rest of their life and uh, that when they're done with their degree they're definitely going home uh, after they're even after they're done with work experience uh, that we hope that they can become dual intent so that those questions don't prevent quality students from and who can afford to come from being able to do so so that's been always been our argument in the U.S. that they should be able to become come at least in that dual intent category, which is like an H-1B, but not like what uh, what they're considering in the U.K. That they're all defined by their nature as even though they're students coming to finish a degree, do a degree, that doesn't automatically mean they're going to stay. Uh, but they have an option to, but it's not uh, not a defined part of that uh, of that visa status in the U.K. Uh, but the government's counting them as they are, as if they are. Uh, but that's that's something for for the Brits to decide. But uh, just to give perspective on what we, what that could mean for the U.S., uh, we welcome immigrants. We always have, uh, though certain presidents have taken different different uh, views on wel- how welcoming will be uh, to s- folks from different parts of the world. Certainly, that is our our. Who we, who we are as a nation. We're founded on immigrants. Uh, I'm an immigrant to the U.S. Uh, when I was five years old, I came on an L-2 uh, intracompany transfer dependent visa. Um, so I was, a, I was an international student when I was in kindergarten here in the U.S. But my, when my family made that decision to come, it was with the intent, if, it, if things worked out, we could stay. And we did. And we've made the U.S. our home for the last uh, 50 uh, 54 years, uh, 50, 53 years currently. Well, no, that's how old I am. So uh, we're talking uh, for the last 40, 40, 48 years. Uh, so it's a really um, a time that uh, in, in the world history and, and certainly our country's history, certainly UK is dealing with this issue of uh, on on the movement of people uh, from uh, unprecedented world events when you had Ukraine and uh, Hong Kong uh, issues as they've had in the UK in terms of migrant populations coming in uh, because of wars and economic issues and uh, other 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 re- uh, recent uh, developments. So we'll see what happens, but uh, we wish our friends in the UK higher ed uh, luck and hopefully that uh, they uh, the government won't muck this up because they do have a good thing going. I wish them the best in sorting that out. So on to question number two. Uh, where are Chinese students going these days? And we've just touched on one of the major destinations is the UK. Uh, they have seen a huge spike in uh, Chinese students, uh, particularly in the first year of the pandemic, after the first year of the pandemic in 2021. Uh, they made the visa process very simple, very straightforward. Uh, we also saw uh, challenges um, that uh, we we experienced here in the United States, uh, we saw uh, we saw a lot of challenges with visa availability in the first year of the pandemic. Embassies and consulates were closed in China. This past year, they've been uh, particularly the past summer, they were open. Uh, they were open and available for students to come on visa appointments uh, to for visa appointments without huge delays. Uh, less than two days wait for a student visa appointment uh, throughout China last year. Uh, the challenge has been the numbers haven't been there to uh, pre-pandemic levels yet. They are still under a lot of restrictions, but somehow uh, they, a lot of them got out and were able to get to the UK this past year. Uh, this, uh, what we see this, this current fall uh, in the UK, the Chinese numbers overall, I think, are down a bit. Uh, I think that we've everybody's seen that, and I think that's in large part due to... Um, 
due to challenges in uh, within China. Uh, and uh, an article that I've posted into the chat that you'll see here in a second uh, from Wes is actually it's a it's a it's a uh, their takes on what's happening. Uh, with uh, open doors data and that type of thing. So that shows a little bit of where they're coming from. Uh, but they do have a section on the, the continued decline uh, in U.S. Uh, in, in Chinese students coming to the U.S. So uh, even though the overall numbers are up this past year. Uh, what it does show, that, and the reason I focus on this article, is there is a chart in there that charts um, Chinese students in top Anglophone destination markets, including U.S., Australia, Canada, and the U.K., uh, there aren't current numbers for uh, the UK this this fall, but we do have. Um, you see the, the the from that chart, you'll see the UK numbers. They kind of peaked in 2019. Uh, overall, 2018 or yeah, nine, excuse me, 1920, and I've I've dropped off precipitously since then. Uh, in Australia, you saw similar. Uh, UK, US still has far and far and away. Uh, I think we've got double what. But just just under double what the UK had as of last fall. Uh, then uh, you see uh, Canada also having a drop during the pandemic from China, but they may be seeing a rebound uh, with uh, opening up a little bit there. Maybe not after uh, Prime Minister Trudeau had a little bit of a falling out publicly with uh, President Xi at a recent uh, summit. So we'll see what happens there. But uh, Australia is still struggling to regain the Chinese market. 28% of Chinese students that are enrolled in Australian institutions are still in China. Again, reflecting that ability, inability to get back uh, to finish their degrees. So we'll see what happens there. But uh, China, in, in terms of a market, we talked about this a couple weeks ago. Are they going to return to the U.S.? And uh, the hope is yes. Uh, and I still am very positive about this. Uh, we have uh, seen some indications that uh, that things are beginning to open up, uh, at least in terms of willingness of travel restrictions internally within China are being uh, improved slightly. Uh, there's still widespread lockdowns in certain regions. Uh, in Shenzhen, you've got Urumqi that's been uh, under lockdown for over 100 days, uh, recent uh, a uh, recent apartment fire there that killed 10 people is largely being blamed on pandemic restrictions and uh, preventing emergency vehicles from getting there in a timely fashion. Uh, you've seen the, the, what that's done in terms of protests, unheard of protests across China that uh, against the lockdown measures that have led to uh, unnecessary deaths, uh, in, even though as they are seeing COVID spikes. You know, there's uh, fears that the, uh, uh, the, the, the the vaccinations that they've been getting in China haven't been of, of the highest quality, and that's leading to more infection rates. We already know in the U.S. that uh, vac just because you're vaccine does vaccinated, fully vaccinated and boosted, that doesn't mean you're never going to get it. it. Just means your symptoms will be a little bit lighter. Uh, I think we've realized it's something. It's it's endemic now. It's not a pandemic anymore. It's 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 here to stay, and there'll be variations on on COVID that will be around for for years, uh, but it's uh, one that we're managing. Uh, people are still dying, yes, but uh, uh, unfortunately that deaths would occur because of the flu, deaths occur because of other, uh, other, other diseases and viruses that pop up from time to time. It's, it's unfortunately something that we have, has become endemic in the U.S. and we've, we're managing it. China is, is, is uh, with a zero COVID policy, we know what that's done. Uh, it's hurt their, hurt their economy. It's hurting uh, production on 
Uh, it's, it's, it's talk about supply chain issues uh, that come from Canada, uh, China. The, that's part of the reason with lockdowns that, uh, for example, the Foxconn uh, factory in, uh, in, in the eastern part of the country that has been under serious lockdowns. They've just had some of that lifted. Um, there, that, was, that was impacting share prices of Apple, for goodness sakes, because that's where some of the iPhones are made. Uh, so there's a lot of a lot of challenges here, and I, I go back to one of my one of the most important books I ever read was "The World Is Flat" by Tom Friedman, uh, just talking about those supply chain issues and how everything is connected uh, in, across the world, and this is something that um, that ex- expands beyond pande- beyond viruses and beyond uh, borders uh, clearly, uh, and that uh, Im- the impacts are, are global. Uh, and China has, has has kind of suffered under that the last uh, last almost three years now. So uh, we're, as we look at China as a as a source market for students, uh, we know that they are still the largest um, overall. Uh, they're becoming uh, uh, as as the new international uh, numbers have showed in the U.S. this past year and in the U.K. that we just shared a, a link on. Uh, India has surpassed China in both uh, the U.S. and the U.K. as far as new international students coming, and that that uh, crossover that's been China's been in the lead for over 15 years, uh, or at least 10 years at least, in uh, as the number one um, source uh, of international students in the U.S. Uh, India will surpass China this year. Uh, can China come back? Yes, but it will it be to the same volumes we had in 2017, 18, 19? Probably not. Uh, I don't think that'll get that close. Well, part of the reason for that, as we talk about where the Chinese students going, is we know that they have many more options beyond just the Anglophone countries. Uh, we know that for mainland Chinese students, Hong Kong is becoming increasingly a preferred option. Other East Asia uh, centers, uh, hubs, university hubs in Malaysia, in Singapore are becoming more popular. Some are, uh, but uh, Chinese students uh, are, are, are expanding to other countries as well. They're going to Germany uh, because the education is free. Uh, they're going to other countries as well in Europe uh, that we, we need to be aware of. There's, they have more options now than they did 10, 15 years ago. That's really funneled them almost exclusively uh, to these Anglophone countries. Uh, they've got more options. So we just know that uh, we're, it's an increasingly competitive game out there. Uh, the pie has gotten a lot bigger in terms of the number of students that are studying abroad, um, not just in China, but uh, around the world. But uh, those students that want to go outside their home countries, they might not go halfway around the world. They might go somewhere to a regional hub that's within a couple hours flight from their home. Uh, as something that's a, a little bit more of a yeah, safer bet for them, so to speak. So we take a look at all of these questions every year, and we've, we've uh, shared before about uh, how, the, how we really see in China. I shared some of this last week that uh, I think China is, is, is going to rebound. Uh, I think uh, the appetite for study abroad is, is vast in China. Uh, we know that... Uh, the indicators from uh, from folks on the ground there seem to be pointing in the right direction. We know the Chinese government has uh, is eager to improve relations uh, with the U.S., uh, particularly with U.S. universities, uh, that uh, they've become so uh, 
reliant on as a way to send their their talented youngsters abroad to uh, receive high quality education and bring those skills back to China. And that's something we do know is that the greater majority of of Chinese students that come to the U.S. will take uh, their degree uh, with and done with their degrees will go home. There will be few and 10, 15, 20 percent that might stay and do uh, do their OPT, might get into the H-1B pipeline and become permanent residents and citizens someday. But the greater majority do go home. And that's just a, a fact that uh, we've we've come to understand in the U.S. And uh, I think the Chinese universities see that as uh, Chinese uh, government and Chinese universities that are increasingly looking for partnerships. Uh, there are some universities that are, are very eager to partner, and uh, but the Chinese government throws up a lot of red tape, frankly. It's bureaucracy that gets in the way of a lot of uh, quality relationships from forming because they all get, get have to be approved up the chain at the Ministry of Education, unless you know somebody who can get, cut through that red tape for you. So uh, it's good to be connected, but you know, with those connections comes oftentimes some challenges. So we'll see, see where, that, where those take us in the, in the coming years. But uh, Chinese students are going abroad in record numbers um, uh, still, not just to the U.S. Uh, and we're, well, we've seen drops. The U.K. has uh, seen a little bit of a drop, but more of an upward tick from China. Canada has seen drops. Australia has seen drops. But they have many more options, and that's, that's why they're going. Uh, they want their education abroad. They want to learn from the best and bring it home and become the best. That's their plan. That's uh, how the Chinese government functions, is everything's uh, with a longer-term vision in mind. And um, they've realized, I think, that uh, there's been a lot of damage done in the last few years to their reputation, and uh, they need to build, rebuild some bridges on both sides, frankly, uh, that's uh, in order for them to prosper again and to, at, to the levels and to reach their longer-term goals that they have. So we'll see where that, where that takes us in the years to come. Last thing, quickly, I'll fi- 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 finish with our law schools going rogue, and this is a fun one. A little bit of a clickbait, but hey, uh, it's, you're not clicking on this one just for the story. Uh, law schools in the United States have increasingly started to buck the trends or buck the ranking system and, and uh, bucking uh, requirements for testing. So it's uh, interesting. Uh, we had two stories this week, uh, both from uh, Inside Higher Ed that shared that uh, law schools are beginning to reject uh, the U.S. news rankings. And they, they're doing so for a number of different reasons, but it's being led, thankfully, by the, the ones that are typically at the top of the list. So Berkeley, Columbia, Georgetown, Stanford uh, joined uh, the movement started by Harvard and Yale to, uh, to, um, to boycott, basically, uh, for lack of a better word. Uh, even though Yale has at the, been at the top of the list for years, uh, they consi- consider it, uh, pr- this is the Yale's uh, law dean, uh, Heather, Gherkin has called the rankings profoundly flawed. They disincentivize programs that support public interest careers, champion need-based aid, and welcome working class students into the profession. And that is perfect. I love that rationale because when you think about it, and it's coming from Yale, which produces Supreme Court justices and federal, federal circuit court judges and um, some of the more prominent uh, legal minds of the, of, um, in the United States, are graduates of Yale Law School. So when you have a top of the line, the top uh, law school in the country saying that, hey, 
this is these are these rankings aren't what we should be about. We should be about the, the public service side of things and uh, uh, and talking about first gen and talking about need need based aid and working class uh, students that want to become lawyers. Uh, all of that is um, is something that is, is encouraging to see coming out of law schools uh, and top law schools for that matter. So you've got on one hand you've got these law uh, law schools reject top law schools rejecting the, the rankings and you also have uh, the ABA uh, the American Bar Association uh, there uh, had a panel that voted to lift test requirements starting in 2025, uh, but the group's governing body still needs to approve the change. Uh, in that, uh, in that panel that was assessing whether the LSAT should still be required, the LSAT being the, or the GRE being uh, one of the tests that most law schools will take, uh, that uh, they voted to remove that uh, to uh, make they can make. You could the current currently ABA allows law schools to use either LSAT or GRE, but uh, by 2025, this panel has recommended that LSAT be made optional. That test uh, law schools have the ability to be test optional. So uh, that uh, the uh, it's it, it's interesting to see uh, this. Uh, it's the strategic review committee. Uh, and talked about uh, the, the importance of uh, access, and that seemed to be one of the cases uh, for why it should not be. Um, uh, and this is uh, it's kind of a little bit rich, but uh, that by removing the LSAT, it's removing access for, it would, in fact, the 60 law deans that uh, which represents fewer than one-third of the total, wrote to the council that, m that made this uh, decision that they worried that the change would hurt minority applicants. The, they wrote that the, the change would diminish the diversity of law schools' incoming classes by increasing reliance on grade point average and other criteria that are potentially more infused with bias, blah, blah, blah. At the very least, we believe that more data on study on, and study on the effects of the precipitous change are needed. So interesting to see that. And, and obviously... Uh, international students, for the in, when they're considering law in the United States, 95% of them aren't coming for JDs. So it's really not that big of an issue. We do get some of the those that have permanent residency, international students that come in and want to go to law school eventually. So that might happen, or they get married and they want to do become a lawyer in the U.S. That happens. We've had that happen at UNLV. Uh, but that, this is part of um, part of what I, I see. Um, the, the whole test optional movement and increasing access, kind of quite the contrary of what these, uh, what these 60 law school deans are saying uh, in terms of uh, removing access. So we'll see what happens with this, but I, I'm, I'm, I'm heartened by this test optional movement affecting law schools as well. I uh, certainly think the, when we talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion and access uh, at our institutions, Nothing gets in the way more of these kind of her, uh, of access to our, our, particularly our graduate programs, than some of these uh, onerous, uh, onerous test requirements that we have. So let's hope that uh, that gains some momentum in the coming years. So that's effective 2025. So still uh, three years off. So that's all we have for you today on the Midweek Roundup. We appreciate you uh, bearing with us today, and we wish you all the very best in the days and weeks ahead. Thanks very much for coming, and we'll see you soon.